Our first reading comes from Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 7 to 11. Matthew 11, picking up the reading from verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. And if you could turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Let's hear from God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Friends, please now turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from verse 9 and 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful, your beautiful word. We thank you, Father, that it is a living word. And by it we have life. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through it. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name and for his glory. Amen. New every morning is the love, our wakening and uprising prove. Through sleepless and darkness safely brought, restored to life and power and thought. If on our daily course our mind be set to hallow all we find, new treasures still of countless price God will provide for sacrifice. Only, O Lord, in thy dear love fit us for a perfect rest above and help us this and every day to live more nearly as we pray. To live more nearly as we pray. A.W. Tozer writes, one of the greatest hindrances of internal peace is the common habit 
of dividing our lives into two, the sacred and the secular. And as we feel compelled by the necessities of living to be always crossing back and forth from one to the other, our inner lives tend to break up so that we live a divided life. And with that struggle expressed in both word and song, a struggle I'm sure everyone here can relate to on some level, we return to this wonderful prayer, a prayer that focuses us in on this very issue. Every precious word given to help us take our fragmented, divided lives and centre and unify it once more under and for the great God who made us. It begins, as we saw last week, not with most holy Lord or powerful ruler of all, but simply our Father. Our Father, because despite what we've been told, we are not products of a primordial slime pond, but were specifically, specially and intentionally created by God for relationship with him. To put it simply and plainly, human beings are sons and daughters of the living God. There are many prodigals, yes, but that truth remains. And when a prodigal returns and the father-son, the father-daughter relationship is restored, we recognise and cherish this every time we come to him. But as we continue in prayer, there's a few other things that we acknowledge as well. First, as our Father is above us, not simply in a, in a geographical sense, but in every way, we pray, our Father in heaven. That is, Father, I come to you knowing you hear me, because you are the all-seeing, all-knowing ruler above. And as we acknowledge this truth, we join the angels in worshipping him, but in a unique way in a way that the angels do not. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be the name you gave specifically and personally to us. A name given in the context of the Exodus. I have heard the cry of my people and have come to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Who are you, Lord? Who should I say is sending me? Tell them I am has sent you. And so God's name, Yahweh, I am, is tied directly to the great Exodus salvation story, isn't it? A story, a name that points us forward to a greater future Exodus to come, where the great I am will save us from a greater slavery and bring us into a greater, indeed, eternal promised land. But friends, as this great future hope comes to mind, we may well ask, where exactly is this great eternal promised land that God promised? Now the reflex answer for many Christians is to immediately look up, isn't it? The great exodus that we look forward to is to be freed from this place down here. Freed from this place to be with our Father in heaven. Heaven is our eternal promised land. 
But friends, if that's your reflex response, look again at what Jesus instructs us to pray next. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now friends, as you pray these words to God, in all the times that you've prayed them, have you ever considered the future reality that you're actually praying for? A new exodus, yes, we all agree on that. But not the great I am taking us to be with him in heaven, but him coming and establishing his heavenly rule down here. But I thought up, no, down. Look as the prayer emphasises this as we continue. Your will be done. Done where? On earth, as it is in heaven. On earth. Because that's the realm, our realm, that is in rebellion. Needs sorting out. And so Jesus instructs us to pray that God's great heavenly rule will come and be established and experienced in the exact same way it currently is in heaven. Now the prophet Habakkuk anticipates this great and glorious day like this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. The apostle John sees the heavenly celebration when this day finally arrives. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Revelation chapter 11. But friends, as we lift our voices in anticipation of that great day, as we pray those very familiar words, your kingdom come, what exactly are we anticipating to happen when it comes? What's the picture I'm to have so I can connect with the words that I'm actually saying? Make this a prayer that's not simply the Lord's prayer, but truly my prayer. So that when I say amen to this prayer, I know what I'm actually saying amen to. Well, friends, if you go to a Bible concordance, you quickly see the word kingdom absolutely lights up in the Gospels. It's on Jesus' lips from day one. And Matthew highlights this for us in chapter 4, saying this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom. Okay, great. So he went about preaching. So what was the content of these sermons? Well, friends, Jesus' first recorded words on the kingdom is in Mark, and it's in chapter 4, and Jesus says this. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Friends, having heard this explanation, I don't know about you, but I would have appreciated something a little less 
metaphorical. No matter, because Jesus follows with another explanation of the kingdom. Maybe this one is a bit more concrete. But no, if you go and have a look at Mark chapter 4 later on, Jesus follows up by mixing his metaphors now in the kingdom, telling his audience the kingdom is also like one tiny single mustard seed that grows and grows into the largest tree in the garden. So there you have it. The kingdom of God is like a field full of wheat, but at the very same time, it's like a single seed that grows into a tree. Okay, but these are parables, aren't they? What about when Jesus is speaking plainly? Well, the Pharisees asked him to do just that in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said this, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now friends, imagine being one of the disciples in this moment. You got that, Pharisees? Nice and clear, boys. And then you go home and lay awake all night with Jesus' words ringing in your head. The kingdom of God is in my midst. What on earth does that mean? Now, friends, who knows if that experience happened to a disciple or not, but we do know that the disciples were just as clueless as anybody else when it came to understanding Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. So how do we not end up like them? Well, a good place to start is to start a little further back in our Bibles. Start with the scriptures Jesus was drawing from as he preached. And friends, when we do that, we find a truly fascinating passage on this topic. And that passage is Psalm uh, Psalm 8. And as we saw before, it begins like this. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Now friends, considering this start, you'd expect perhaps David to continue to glory in God's majesty and rule, wouldn't you? Perhaps calling on him to more and more establish it throughout his creation. But no, have another listen to what he says next. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now friends, 
This is kingdom language, all right, front and centre. But the focus of David's praise here is how Yahweh our Lord, verse 1, would allow us to rule over the works of his hands, would decide to to crown us with such glory and honour as to put what is his under our feet. Under our feet. And this truth completely blows David away, boggles his mind, that originally the earth was our kingdom to rule, not independently of God, but as his image bearers. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I don't often reflect on that truth. And even as I think about it now, as I look at Psalm 8, I find it hard to believe, as David does. But the scriptures could not be clearer. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule. But as we know, don't we, this rule did not last long. This immense privilege forfeited when our first parents sought to usurp the rule of the one who gave it to us. And so Psalm 8 is a song that sings of a truth, but a past truth, a lost truth. Our original design and dignity and purpose is no more. And friends, the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 2 of his letter. Have a listen. There is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God has left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Friends, that's the understatement of the century, isn't it? The earth now rules us rather than the other way around. Our efforts to command and control constantly thwarted and frustrated at virtually every turn until eventually our own bodies betray us and the earth winds up having the last laugh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So what is the Hebrew writer's purpose in restating this sad state of affairs? of bringing up the tragedy that we threw away the crowns that God gave us. Well, friends, because something happened, something big. Back to the verse. At present, we do not see everything subject to him, but, but what? But we see Jesus who was also made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. In other words, there is a man, 
a flesh and blood person like us by the name of Jesus, who Psalm 8 and all that is said in it is 100% true of him. How can that be so? Back to the verse. He is crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. Uh, Don't we all suffer death? Yes. But as the writer will go on to say, as do all the New Testament writers, death is the result of sin. The punishment for sin, Romans 6.23 But this man was sinless. So what happens when a sinless man is wrongly judged and condemned and put to death? Well, the true judge steps in. As Peter says in his very first sermon, God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God steps in and raises the sinless man. More than that, vindicates him by restoring to him the Psalm 8 rule that we have lost. Everything put under his feet. Because this man, unlike us, lived as a true son, a true image bearer. And forget the temptation of a piece of fruit. Not even the threat of an horrific execution could budge Jesus from this one iota. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, Jesus was obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. The result? Jesus is given the keys, the rule, the ownership The whole lot. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, the first picture we are to have is the one who came in our midst, Jesus, in the centre of it, ruling and reigning. But friends, this kingdom is not going to be a one-man show. No, it's going to be populated. But how can that be so when we, unlike Jesus, do deserve the death penalty? Well, the writer to the Hebrews now tells us, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Friends, don't miss what's being communicated right here to you. Jesus' obedience unto death wasn't simply about his vindication, but our salvation. Jesus' offered, willingly offered his life for yours. Peter writes, For Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
to bring you to God. Not semi-restored or halfway redeemed, but fully and completely. And friends, if we are fully redeemed and restored, so is our original purpose. Listen to these words from Paul to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, endure, we will also reign with him. That sounds pretty Psalm 8-ish, doesn't it? As does Romans 8.17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. One more, Revelation 5 verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign over the earth. Friends, what are we to be thinking and picturing when we pray your kingdom come? Well, we are to be thinking how God has set a date when his original Psalm 8 plan for his creation will be fully restored once more forever. The curse from this world gone. No more thorns and thistles, shiny, brand new and ready for God's sons and daughters to rule once more. But on that great day from day one, there is going to be one key difference. In the centre of this kingdom and on the throne will be the one who has made it all possible for us. Holes still in his hands, feet and side. A testimony to how he miraculously, graciously, mercifully restored all things, including us, back to our original purpose. The marks of Jesus' curse-destroying, sin-destroying death will be a forever testimony that this kingdom is a kingdom he established and graciously shares with all who recognise him as Saviour and Lord. From Jesus' own lips, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Revelation chapter 4. And so what is our picture when we pray your kingdom come? Well, Friends, we are praying for the day where we won't rise up to heaven, but the day our Saviour, Lord, Brother and King returns to make us, the earth and all things new. And there in this kingdom, his kingdom, the great Psalm 8 King will share his rule with us. How will we reign and rule with him? 
What will this look like? Well, that is yet to be revealed. But it's going to be worth the wait, says Paul, writing, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, with that promise set before us, the last thing left to ask is, as you pray, your kingdom come, is are you a citizen of it? One of his wheat growing in that field, waiting for the harvest day. One of those who comes and takes shelter under that growing mustard tree. Have you responded in love for the one, the son, who God lovingly sent into our midst to restore you as sons? That you might reign and rule with him in a world where everything that thwarts and harms, destroys and frustrates, gone. What a picture that is. A picture not of boredom, as some may think, but the opposite, of endless, countless possibilities. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you, Father, for the great privilege and honour that you would set aside your creation for us to rule under you. Lord, this points to your wonderful generosity, your graciousness, your mercy, seen most clearly in the sending of your Son to restore our original purpose. We thank you so much for him who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Not so he would only be vindicated, but that we would be glorified with him. A heavenly father, we can hardly even begin to imagine how that would look. But heavenly father, we thank you that that is true, as true as Jesus died and rose again and is now exalted to your right hand. Now, Heavenly father, help us to live as we wait that day, as your children. Help us to bring others into your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be obedient servants to you as we await your wonderful kingdom to come. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name.